0: Good morning, everyone. Please open up to John chapter 7. You know, we began the new year looking at... Uh, we took a little detour out of the Gospel of John and we went into Psalm 1. We looked also at Psalm 19. It took a period of four weeks altogether. And that was to really stimulate the hunger for the Word of God, that the Word of God is infallible, that the Word of God is all powerful, that the Word of God mainly was our focus was that it's all sufficient for all the complexities of life. For everything that life has to throw at us, the Word is totally sufficient to guide us, to direct us, to enable us. We come now back to the Gospel of John. When we left, we studied chapter 6, which was really the, uh, the watershed moment of belief and departure of those for those that were following Christ, the mass mobs that had been following Christ came to a dividing line true belief and said belief. And the last time we left, many went out and departed and followed him no more. But as we begin chapter 7, I want to ask the question to each one of you. As a believer in Jesus Christ. Are you on the divine timetable of God? Do you operate on God's divine timetable? Or are you operating on meaningless time? Because as disciples of Jesus Christ, your every minute, my every minute counts for eternity. For eternity. Key word is disciple. The word disciple occurs 269 times in the New Testament. The term Christian is found three times. The term Christian was first introduced to refer precisely to the disciples. So one is either a disciple of Jesus Christ or not. One is either truly saved or they are not. You're truly saved. You are, whether you know it or not, on the divine table of God. You know, our call as believers is to make disciples. All believers are called to make disciples. The Heidelberg Catechism says that all and everyone who believes, being members of Christ, are in common partakers of him and of all his riches and gifts. Secondly, that everyone must know it to be his daily or duty, readily and cheerfully, to employ his gifts for the advantage in salvation of other members." G. Campbell Morgan said that it is possible to be homiletically brilliant, verbally fluent, theologically profound, biblically orthodox, and spiritually useless. I've met some of these people. They have a head filled with knowledge. They have all kinds of theology upstairs. And they think it's their duty to come in, dispense that truth, and just roll out and to be catered to along the way. That's not the case in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's another group of Christians who having a very limited perspective as to their part in the kingdom become embittered with the church. Or they suffer from what is referred to as as burnout. And the only reason that there's this very contemporary, complicated, call it what you will thinking of oh I'm burned out I'm burned out in ministry is that typically that individual will have had a very high expectation of how he should be treated by other people and when that expectation isn't met they suffer burnout and if they look close enough they'll come to realize that they've been serving in their own strength not in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because to serve under the Lordship of Christ and in the power of of the Holy Spirit, there will not be burnout. There will be no burnout. D.L. Moody is quoted as having said that, I quote, I don't believe that a man breaks down with hard work so much as with using the machinery without oil, without lubrication. It is not the hard work that breaks down ministry, but it is the toil of working without the power." That will be the cause for breakdown, burnout, or failure for anyone. To function and operate outside of the power of the Holy Spirit. It will be very frustrating. Even as we look at the life of Christ, we see that in the midst of superficial support, He had all kinds of support. We, we, we saw in chapter 6 it was superficial. It wasn't true believers. It was It was false support in the midst of religious opposition, in the midst of constant misunderstanding, a group of undiscerning disciples, rising hostility, Jesus remained steadfast, on course, as to the will and the purpose of the Father. Doing everything on time. Never early, never late, always on time. All the way to the point at which He was nailed to the cross was on time. Perfectly on time. All accomplished in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus did not lean on His divinity to have a successful earthly ministry. He leaned on the power of the Holy Spirit. Just read Luke's Gospel alone. He came in the Spirit. He was conceived in the Spirit. He was led out by the Spirit to be tempted. He came back full of the Spirit. He did His ministry in the power of the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit. God led by the third person of the Trinity. The second person of the Trinity led by the third person of the Trinity to be on the timetable of the first person of the Trinity, God the Father. Never early, never late. And with that in mind, let's go ahead and read the first 13 verses of John chapter 7. And it says, beginning in verse 1. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for He did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill Him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to Him, Depart from here. Go into Judea, that Your disciples also may see the works that You are doing. For no one does anything in secret while He Himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even His brothers did not believe in Him. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates Me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast, I'm not yet going up to this feast, for My time has not yet fully come. And when He had said these things to them, He remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. And then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said he is good. Others said no. On the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Father God, we ask now that you'll open our eyes to the truth of your living word. Lord, we see now the hostility of those that were set against you begin to rise now in this chapter on to the end. Lord, until we witness the death, your death on the cross. Help us, Lord, to have eyes to see, ears to hear, the great principles of applicable truth here within these verses for our own lives. That we will be steadfast to be in your time table, and not one of human. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, verses one through thirteen here um, really set the stage for what will occur in all of chapter seven, in all of chapter eight, chapter seven and eight, which all takes place at the feast of tabernacles. Chapter seven, chapter eight are a seven-day period of time. Now, up to this point, there's been this growing resentment, this festering hostility towards Jesus. And it's here that we'll see this smoldering smoldering hatred ignite to the point to where these Jews will pick up stones to kill Him. Except that He'll escape because it was not yet what? It was not yet His time. And that's the central theme of the passage. The divine schedule of Jesus according to the preordained plan of God the Father. Look at verse, verse one. It says, "After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him." Now after these things, these things are the things of chapter six. The feeding of the 5,000, which was a feeding of anywhere upward of 15, perhaps 20,000 people. All they did was count men. There would have been 5,000. And as you recall, there would have been men and women there as the synoptic Gospels reveal for us. So you're talking 15-20,000 people. After those things, He walked in Galilee because the Jews sought to kill Him down in Judea. And it's here that we have a clear reference that takes us back to chapter 5, verse 18. Notice this, if you recall, Jesus had healed a lame man by the pool of Bethesda the last time He was in Judea. In chapter 5, beginning in verse 10, it says, The Jews therefore said to Him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He who made Me well said to Me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked Him, Who's the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, a multitude being in that place. Now, once it was discovered that Jesus made him well, they therefore seek to kill him. If you jump down to verse 15, this is, The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus. They sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them in verse 17, My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill Him. Why? Because He also said that God was His Father making Himself equal with God. There's a claim of deity. To claim equality with the Father is to claim deity. It's to say that you're God. Therefore, for blasphemy now, not only breaking the Sabbath, they wanted to pursue and kill Jesus. Therefore, they sought Him all the more. So here, this hostility, this this smoldering resentment and hatred against Jesus was already brewing. But it even started prior to this. If you go back to chapter 2, when Jesus came in for Passover, and this really kicked off the ministry of Jesus. If you recall, Jesus began his public ministry up in Galilee, and he turned uh, water to wine. His first sign miracle, which was to manifest His his glory, declaring His deity, that was the purpose of turning water to wine. I recently heard a man preach on this that I know personally, and he said, Jesus turned water to wine in order to make the party better. It's a very man-centered focus. That is not the reason Jesus turned water to wine. The reason is right here, to manifest His glory, declaring His deity that He was God. Having power over nature. That's the reason He turned water to wine. It wasn't to make any party better. And from that wedding, He headed toward Jerusalem for Passover. Where at the temple, He walks in, He makes a cord of whips, and He lays it to the backs of those money changers. Chases out the animals. Flips tables upside down. Remember that? There's a way to kick off a ministry. Clean house. You know, it's said that you cannot build a church until you clean it out first. Right? When I started here, half the people left. Second month, they were gone. It was here that they asked Jesus after cleaning out the temple back in John chapter 2, verse 18. They said, what sign do you do to show us these things? Jesus answered, said to, said to them, destroy this temple, in three days I'll raise it up. How about that? And then the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? You know they never forgot that statement? If Jesus agonized on the cross they walked in front of him on that cross in Matthew 27:39, and those who passed by him blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, "You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down off the cross." So it was because of this intense antagonism, this hatred against Jesus, that he remained in Galilee. So after the opposition of the Jews in chapter 5, the healing of the paralyzed man, notice chapter 6, it says after these things. After the things of what? After the things of healing the man? In chapter 5, in which they pursued his death, he headed north and went to Galilee. He began to do many works, many miracles. Chapter 4 of Matthew tells us that his fame went out through all the land and he healed everyone that came to him with every sickness. And if you heal every person with every sickness, your fame is going to go up throughout the land and it's going to draw a bigger crowd, isn't it? And indeed, He drew that crowd. And in chapter 6, we see that crowd. And in chapter 6, Jesus had sympathy on the crowd as they gathered at the time of Passover and as they traveled towards Jerusalem, He had mercy and He multiplied bread and fish to be able to feed them, to take care of a daily provision. They followed Him even more so. Jesus confronts them. He says, let me tell you why you followed me across the lake. It's because yesterday I fed you and you're back for more. You're only here because your gut is filled. You don't care about my purpose. All you care about is what I can provide for you physically. And then his teaching got difficult. And he said, let me tell you something. Unless you you drink my blood and eat my flesh, you have no part of me. You're not true. You're a false believer. You're a false disciple. And what happened to the mom? They left. Jesus did not plead, please don't go, don't go. No, He turned to His 12 disciples, one of which was a fraud, and He said, do you want to go with them too? Also? Peter? Lord, we have nowhere else to go. Where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Right? From chapter 6, verse 3, through the end of the chapter is two days it's a two-day period of time so from chapter 6 to chapter 7 there's a six-month gap john doesn't refer to that six-month gap john's not concerned about the, the chronological order of Jesus's ministry John's purpose in writing the gospel of John is to declare the deity of Jesus Christ the fact that Jesus was God in a body he's the God man that's his purpose for writing To understand what Jesus did is to simply look at the other Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And as you put the pieces together, you see what he did. So, chapter one, or verse one here, reveals for us the fact that Jesus walked in Galilee because the Jews sought to kill him. Chapter 7 occurs here at the Feast of Tabernacles which would take place September-October. The last time is Passover when we read of Him. That was, would be March or April. You know, Jesus Christ is the great disturber. You know that? He disturbs people, doesn't He? When you're confronted with the living Christ, you react. You react. He reveals the sinfulness of man. He exposes the the hypocritical false worship of man and that's exactly what He did with these religious hypocrites. He exposed them for what they were. He referred to them as whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones, right? They looked all good on the outside, but they were rotten on the inside. Jesus penetrates the most intimate secrets of our souls. He lays them bare. He's authoritative. His Word is final. Anyone who's confronted with the living Christ, they will react, be it good, bad, or indifferent. Good, you repent and believe. Bad, you resist him. you'll hate him. Or those who are indifferent, oh yeah, Jesus is just alright with me, right? Those are the ones who remain quote-unquote undecided. If you're undecided for Jesus Christ, you're decided to be against Him. There's no middle ground. You're in or you're out. Those who confess Jesus Christ with their mouth and have never been born again are self-deceived. Jesus said, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom. Jesus challenges laziness. Jesus challenges unresponsiveness. Everywhere He went, He created division. He was, He is, and will always be divisive. There shouldn't be division within the church. It's just the unfortunate thing is that many who claim to be a church do not teach what the church is supposed to teach. And unfortunately divisions arise because the gospel is not preached correctly. And when the gospel's not preached correctly, it's watered down and made palatable and man pleasing, we have to separate ourselves from of the false gospel. It's that simple. It's unfortunate. It's unfortunate. But the true gospel divides. So at this point, there's no longer a debate among the religious Jews as to what they're going to do with Jesus. They're dead set against Him. They want Him dead. They want Him out of the picture. Jesus attacked their religious hypocrisy head on. And these apostate Jews had, had enough of Jesus, His claims of deity, <clears throat> and His confrontational demeanor. He didn't mess around. He got right to the point, right to the heart of the matter. You know, once... Once Jesus enters the conscious mind of men, the conscious mind of men, there's only two responses. You either submit to Him completely or you attempt to eliminate Him. That's always been the case. It always will be the case. You either bow in submission or you attempt to eliminate Him from your thinking, from the condition in your soul. So the plot was in stride here from chapter 5, verse 18, where Jesus headed north. And therefore, He remained in Galilee for these six months. That's one reason He remained up there. There's another reason. And as I read this week and as I studied and as I uh, read through the Synoptic Gospels, the other reason He remained is for what we really need to take heed to. The main focus and the most important facet of ministry is the reason in which Jesus remained in Galilee outside of the fact that they wanted them dead. And it's not to feed the poor. It's not to erect church buildings. And it wasn't even for the sake of evangelism. The greatest and hardest and core work of ministry is this. Making disciples. Making disciples. The most time-consuming, truly successful facet of ministry, which is a priority according to Jesus, not only by his words, but also by example, is making disciples. The success of a church is not how many you have, but what kind you have. What kind of disciples you have. Jesus had many disciples in chapter 6. They're referred to as disciples, but they weren't true disciples. They followed at a distance. They wanted his hand, and what he could provide them. Now, drawing a crowd is easy. We can draw a crowd. You get the right bands, the right people, the right celebrities. You can draw a crowd. That's simple. But discipleship is demanding. Discipleship is time-consuming. You know, the church is so fragmented today because of its lack of, lack of depth. It's very shallow. And there's no ability of the body to be able to minister to one another. The great thing about this church, and, and the reason that I don't do much counseling in this church is because I don't have to. Because nobody's asking for it. And the reason they're not asking for it is because they're ministering to one another. And the reason that they minister to one another is because they know what the word of God says. Therefore, they're, they've been able—they're enabled—to minister to one another. So this is a very healthy body. So we're kind of preaching to the choir here, but the truth is the truth. This is what Jesus did. This is why we model our ministry after Christ. You know, even the even the even the pulpit has a primary responsibility. And it's not an overemphasis on evangelism. We must preach the gospel regularly. But if you overemphasize evangelism, and I mean in the sense of which it's become popular, you have bands and you draw a crowd and, and you do it for the sake of, of of stirring up emotion, sensationalism, to get people to make some type of response to something, some type of quote unquote decision. And then you look at these masses as success. And if you follow the people long enough and if you can speak with the people down the road, you'll discover that many of them are, are, are still unregenerate. They're not true believers. Constant evangelism in that manner will suppress growth and it will promote immaturity. That's a guarantee. 2 Timothy 2 verse 1, Paul says to his son in the faith, Timothy, he says, You therefore, My son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that you have heard from Me among many witnesses do what? Commit. Commit these things to faithful men who what? Will be able to teach others also. It's making disciples. Teaching. Pouring into. So that they in turn can pour into someone else. With what? Truth. Doctrine. Time and time again, Paul says, give yourself, lend yourself to the what? The doctrine. The doctrine. Stand for sound doctrine. Test all teachings in light of sound doctrine. Ministry to the masses is never a substitute for the principal command of making disciples. It's not a matter of how many did you lead to Christ. It's not a matter of how many showed up to your evangelistic event. It's not even how often did you present the Gospel this week. The most important question is who have you discipled? And who are you discipling? And that goes for all of us. Because healthy sheep beget healthy sheep. Healthy sheep at the Civic Hope Church are begetting healthy sheep. They're doing the work of the ministry. When discipleship is happening, you'll have rich fellowship. Where discipleship is happening, you'll have faithful giving where discipleship is happening, you will have effective evangelism. True evangelism. The true Gospel. The biblical Gospel. Not a watered-down Gospel. And everything else that makes up a healthy church will fall right into place when discipleship is the focus. So Jesus, not only was did He remain in Galilee because they sought to kill Him, He also was spending His time in His life in human flesh preparing eleven men for what we in this room would be partakers of two thousand years later eleven men there was twelve but one of them was a fraud one of them looked like the real deal but he was a fake so he was born into eleven men verse two now the Jews feast of tabernacles was at hand again this took place in late September early October and it would this commemorated the end of the forty year wandering of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years, back in the Old Testament, Moses led them through the wilderness. So to the Jews, this was a great time of thanksgiving. This would be equivalent to thanksgiving time for us. Much more festive, lasted seven days instead of our four-day weekend. Seven days. There were three feasts which every male, every male Jew was required to attend. That was Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Living within a 20-mile radius, it was the law. You had to go in. You must journey in every Jewish male into Jerusalem. And this feast was associated with the Old Testament with the ingathering of harvest. And this wasn't a wheat and grain harvest that would take place in the spring. at tabernacles in the fall. This this was the harvest of of grapes and olives. So here's what you had going on. And during that 40 years, Israel dwelt in tabernacles. So to commemorate that in remembrance at this time of year for seven days, they would make these little booths. Brett read from it this morning. You would make them out of sticks and branches and leaves and they would leave an opening in the sides so the wind could blow through in remembrance of being in the wilderness. A hole in the roof to look up at the stars of of being out in the wilderness as well. In the temple, in the inner court, they, they would light these torch parades to, in memory of, of God leading Israel with a pillar of fire. They would pour out water from the pool of Siloam. They would pour it out to remind them that God gave water to them and provided for them from a rock. Deuteronomy 16.13 says, You shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days when you have gathered from your threshing floor and from your wine press. So this is what was going on. Now, the significance of of the water, the rock, the pillar of fire, and all that, we're not going to focus on that today. Jesus is going to use those two elements to craft this sermon later on in the chapter. So we'll look at that in the weeks to come. So here it is, the fall time of the year. There's this bustle to get to Jerusalem. That's the mood. That's what's going on. And then in verse 4, Therefore, because of that tradition, therefore, because of that feast, that time of year, his brother said to him, depart from here. From where? Galilee. And go into Judea, south. Head up to Jerusalem. Doesn't matter what direction you're going, coming from. To go to Jerusalem is to head up. The holy city. It was highly elevated. So whether you came north, south, east, whatever direction, you would head up to Jerusalem. Depart from here. Go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret, while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Here we need the half-brothers of Jesus. James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude. Obviously, Jesus was the oldest. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit through Mary. But she and Joseph would go on to have many other children. We read in Matthew's account, chapter thirteen, verse fifty-five, when they were inquiring about Jesus and his dynamic, powerful ability to teach, he says, "Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Where then does this man get these things?" Because when Jesus taught, he did not teach as described of the Pharisees. He is one who taught with what authority. Because He is the Word. God in human flesh. Now, when Jesus seems to be in no hurry here to attend the feast, His brothers chime in. and begin to criticize. So they took it upon themselves here to become the Lord's self-appointed political committee, really. All right? Now, by no means could His brothers deny His power. Nobody could deny His power. Jesus didn't grow up doing miracles, by the way. They didn't see any of this when he was a child. When he began his public ministry at the age of 30 is when he began to do his sign miracles, the first of which was at that wedding, of which certainly his brothers would have been at. And then they witnessed everything he did up in Galilee. So they didn't deny the power, but they figured that to reveal that power and to be accepted, you have to go down to Jerusalem. So, he could regain the losses of the multitudes that took off from his hardcore teaching back in chapter 6, right? You've got to regain the losses. So, in modern vernacular, what they're saying is that, you know, Jerusalem is the ideal platform to present your case, Jesus. Let's give you some advice. You need a larger arena. Galilee is too remote up here. You've got to go where the action is. If you want to be accepted, if you want to be a public figure, you have to market yourself, you have to keep the people motivated. So then they keep coming back, Jesus. They're going to get bored with that hardcore teaching stuff. You've got to stir up the signs and miracles. And if you're going to do it, don't do it up here in the countryside of Galilee. Go down where all the people are. You know, nobody wants to win friends and influence people in the remote locations, right? To win friends and influence people, you've got to go to Hollywood, right? You go to Hollywood. Hollywood. And apostate Jerusalem was their Hollywood. If they accept you, you're in. That was their thinking. Look, if you're the Messiah and you claim to be so, give the people what they want and perform the miracles that Messiah performs. But don't do it up here. You do these things, go do it down there. Want to go public? Have a greater influence? Display yourself to the world. This is what Satan attempted to do in the wilderness. Jump off the top of the temple, right? Over the Kidron Valley, 300 and some feet. Jump off and land. Just float down, and everyone will worship you. And if you do it, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus took no shortcuts. No way. You know, many churches today model their ministries with that kind of attitude. They hire consultants. They take surveys. They do demographic studies. They see what the people want and then they tailor their message to those wants and desires, you see. You don't do that. That's not the church. You don't do that. You don't find out what people want and then give them what they want. You give them what they don't want. And that's the truth of God that cuts deep. The only people that want that are redeemed people. And the only one that God can change to want that is someone who's unredeemed, who He's working, and who He's going to convert. And they're only going to be converted by that truth. Not some watered-down, palatable, man-accepted gospel, right? No way. A lot of these churches have publicists, they advertising agents, they market their program or a person. And then the ministry is built on a person or a certain program rather than the Word of God. And if it's not modeled and focused on the Word of God, it's not focused on Jesus Christ, because He is the Word. Never evaluate a ministry by its size. Never evaluate a ministry by its events, emotional or sensational techniques, ever. You evaluate a ministry by its teaching in the fruit of the disciples that it's making. Jesus had done great works in Jerusalem back in chapter 2 at the Passover, brothers and sisters. Remember that? It says that many saw the signs which He did and they, it said they believed. Now don't get tricked when you see the world believe. Make sure you understand the context. They did not believe in Him. Turn back to chapter 2. You know, just, just mark this. Jesus never panders to superficial belief. Ever. He calls it out. Back in chapter 2, beginning in verse 23, it says, Now, when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in His name which they saw when they saw the signs which He did. Couldn't deny the signs, right? Verse 24, But Jesus did not commit Himself to them because He knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for He knew what was in man. He knew that their belief was nothing but a coming out of their mouth. It wasn't coming out of their heart. It was superficial. It was on the surface. They believed it in miracles. They believed in His power, but they didn't believe in His person, let alone believe in His purpose. So these superficial disciples back in chapter 2 and chapter 6, they were not able to perceive the significance of what they witnessed. They observed His power. They didn't understand His purpose. And the reason Jesus' brothers here see things the same way, they believed His power, not His purpose, is stated the reason, verse 5, for even His brothers did not believe in Him. They believed about Him and His power, but they did not believe in Him. Now we know that in God's perfect timing, these brothers came to true saving faith. But at this point, They were dead in trespasses and sins. Let that be an encouragement to you if you have a loved one who's not a believer. Jesus' own half-brothers, unbelievers at this point. Come on, somebody. Unbelievers. Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, the eldest of these siblings, they did not believe in Him. Be encouraged. Pray without ceasing for that unbeliever. Keep praying because in Acts 1, we see these brothers again. After the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with His brothers. Brother James would go on to pastor the church of Jerusalem and pen the epistle of James. Brother Jude would go on to write the epistle that bears His name, and they both introduced themselves in those epistles, as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice they didn't focus upon themselves. It's me, James. Half-brother of Messiah. (laughs) Son of the living God in human flesh. Grew up in Nazareth. Spent some time in Galilee. Gave Him some advice of what to do to manifest His glory. Nothing like that. No, servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. But nevertheless, at this point, they were unbelievers. Verse 6, Jesus said to them, unbelieving brothers, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. Now, Jesus' response to this is that He describes the difference between His brothers and themselves. God's divine timing versus the meaningless life and timing of unredeemed man. The word time is kairos here. And the word kairos means proper time. It means a set or fixed time. And it carries the idea of opportunity. The most suitable moment. It's a moment that must be seized or it will be lost forever. That's how we must operate as believers. Seizing the moment. And you can only seize the moment if you're walking in the moment by the power of the Holy Spirit. To fall into patterns of sin, you're not sensitive to the moving and the power of the Holy Spirit. You become desensitized. You start leading yourself around by your own flesh. Jesus was living and operating on a divine timetable and calendar, not by chance, ever, not one moment, by chance. Jesus is saying here that he's under special constraint. Everything he does is of total worth, to the glory of God and to the furtherance of the kingdom. But your time, He says, is always ready. Your time is always ready. You know, the brothers, you can go up to the feast anytime you desire. Because what you do is without significance as far as God is concerned. Without significance. The unredeemed, they can do what they want, do as they like. Because if you're going to die like a dog, you may as well live like a hog. Live like a hog and die die as a dog. Because if hell is your home, you may as well live like it. Amen? Because the only life that matters is the life of the believer. Only Christians operate on divine time. That's the principle here. Christians operate on the divine time. Every moment counts for eternity for those of us who are in Christ. Unbelievers can come and go as they desire. That's what Jesus is saying here. The only divine appointment that they'll face is is one of death and judgment. So as a believer, your time and my time is to be filled with meaning. Living for the glory of God. If not, your time becomes like the world's time. Insignificant. Superficial. You know, we're going to be judged for what we do here as believers. You'll never be judged for your sin as far as punishment goes because Christ paid for that. Our faith is built on the foundation which is Jesus Christ. And the fiery eyes of Christ at the judgment seat will judge our works here on earth. And it will be revealed for what they were built out of, whether it be straw, grass, whatever. When the fiery eyes of Christ look at it, they're going to sizzle up and wither. There's no reward. But those who redeem the time build upon the foundation which is Jesus Christ with gold and silver and precious stone. When the fiery eyes of Christ look at it, it refines it. There's a reward there. So if you're a true Christian, you're part of God's divine schedule. Our life is not our own, amen? Our life is not our own. Ephesians 5, verse 15, Paul says, See that you, that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time. Why? Because the days are evil. Redeeming the time makes to make, to, to make the best possible use of all circumstances. You can make the best possible use of the circumstances this afternoon when you watch the Super Bowl. Anything wrong wrong with watching the Super Bowl? Not really. Not in and of itself. We can make the most of the time. If there's conviction on you, brother, whoever you are, you don't want to watch, don't watch it. <laughs> Paul's urging his readers to seize the time, to seize the opportunity, for fear that it will be wasted. Colossians 4, verse 5 says, Walk in wisdom towards those who are on the outside, redeeming the time. Outside of what? Outside the family of faith. As a Christian, your life is not your own. You're on God's timetable. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price, paid for, bought back. That's redemption. You know, Jesus came to die at a precise moment and not one second too soon. 10. Chapter 7, verse 30, it says, Therefore they sought to take Him, but no one laid a hand on Him because what? His hour had not come. Chapter 8, verse 20, they were going to pick up stones and stone them. He declared to be the great I Am. He said, before Abraham was, I Am. You, by the way, are of your father the devil. That's what He said. They picked up stones but no one laid hands on on Him for His hour had not yet come. Later on, when you get to chapter 12, preceding the cross, Jesus said, Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. And Jesus would be laid upon the cross in perfect timing, not one second too soon. So what Jesus' brothers did and what all unbelievers do is entirely without importance as far as God is concerned. And verse 7 explains why. Why unbelievers lack meaning. Why they lack divine significance. Because the world cannot hate you, unbeliever. But it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. The reason that they lack an appointed time is that they belong to the world. That's what Jesus says. They belong to the world system. Before Christ saved you, you belonged to the world system. Before I was saved by grace, I belonged to the world system. I was part of the world system. The antichrist mentality. World here means the realm of evil. Mankind in that realm is alienated from the life of God. The Bible says that we were at enmity with God, meaning at war with Him. And He was at war with you. So anyone that's not born again is part of that world system. D.A. Carson writes on this, and he says, I quote, their alignment with the world means they know nothing of God's agenda. They do not listen to His Word, do not recognize it when it comes, and cannot perceive the Word incarnate before them. They are divorced from God's kairos, His divine appointments. And so, any time will do. Do what you want, when you want, because what? You don't believe. Therefore, John chapter 3 says, you're already condemned. Why? Because you don't believe. But we believe. Therefore, we're on a divine timetable to uphold the, the, the purpose of God. This is why he goes on to say the world cannot hate you because His brothers are living in sync with the world. They're part of it. But He says it hates Me because I testify of its works that they're evil. You know, Jesus was and is an offense to the world. He challenged sin and the religious corruption of the day. He exposed the moral self-righteous decadence of the Jews. And He raised the bar of outward righteousness. Right. To inward exposure of the heart. Back in Matthew chapter five, six, and seven, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said six times, "You have heard what it, that it was you have heard that it was written of those of old." And then six times he says, "But I say to you, you've heard the law; your interpretation of it is this. But let me tell you what I meant by it when I wrote it. It's an inward thing, not an outward thing. You might look good on the outside, you religious Pharisee hypocrite, but I'm talking about the inside." And there's nothing you can do to change that on your own. It takes the supernatural power of God. That's why He says in chapter 5, verse 3 of Matthew, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom. Those who come to God reaching out as a beggar knowing that they have nothing in and of themselves to offer God. That's the place of the rebirth. God draws them there by grace. So, He exposes their hypocritical, religious pretentiousness there. He exposes hidden filth of the hearts and He makes people uncomfortable and angry. And He never shaded the truth. Why? Because He is the truth. You know, euphemisms are designed to shade truth. To blur people's thinking. Webster's Dictionary defines a euphemism as an inoffensive expression for one that may offend or suggest something unpleasant. Jesus did not and will not play word games. Amen? He doesn't mess around. He gets right to the point. You know, today we hear many expressions that are designed to be less offensive than what they really are. Someone may refer to their life partner. Significant other. When in reality, they're talking about the sin of homosexuality. Having an affair sounds less threatening than adulterer, right? To be sexually active is to be sexually active outside of marriage, which is the sin of fornication. Some will talk about their young adult daughter or son who grew up in the church and grew up in the faith and made some profession of faith when they were 12, 13, 15, Whatever and they're living like a pagan, and and you go, how's your son or daughter? Oh, they're working on their testimony. (laughs) Which is to say, they've rejected the Gospel, and they love the world. That's what Jesus says it is. The world wants to attempt to justify their sin by categorizing it as something other than it really is. And Jesus nails it. They wanted him dead because they hated that. Why? Because they're part of the world. They're part of that world system. You know, people are characterized by certain lifestyles. They profess to be Christians, they're characterized by a certain type of lifestyle be it, you know, fornication, homosexuality, adultery, or whatever they claim to be a Christian, if they remain in that lifestyle and that lifestyle characterizes who they are, those people, though they may claim to be Christians, are deceived, the Bible says. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor adult idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will what? Will inherit the kingdom of God of God but he goes on he's talking to the church and he says such were some of you you know what the church is filled with former homosexuals former fornicators former adulterers former drunkards former revilers former liars cheaters stealers and so on but we've been washed you've been cleansed you've been sanctified you've been justified therefore your life no longer characterizes the things that cause deception Now, a Christian can fall or stumble into one of these, but the thing is for the Christians, he can't remain in it. Because church discipline takes effect. Beginning with what? Conviction of the Holy Spirit. The hope is that he'll respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. If he doesn't respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, then the brother's going to confront his sin. If he doesn't repent to the brother, then two or three are brought. If he doesn't repent, then we bring it to the church. And if the church reaches out and doesn't reach him and he refuses, then you have to treat him as an unbeliever. Jesus came to expose truth. He came to open the eyes of the self-deceived. And they hated Him for it. They wanted Him eliminated. Jesus arouses the natural hostility of the heart that wants to cover up the nature of evil. He stirs that up. That is why the world resists him. That is why the world hates him. And that is why they sought to kill him here in chapter 7. And they will proceed to desire to kill him until they eventually do, according to the divine purpose of the Father set before the foundation of the earth. You know, if we become popular as Christians within the world system, you know, anything that we do. That operates outside of or independently of God in this world and you're patted on the back for it by the world, here's here's Beware. Beware, said Jesus. Not John Luther Jesus. Beware when the world speaks well of you. Luke chapter six, verse twenty six. On the other hand, when you're in and of Christ, the world's gonna hate you. That doesn't mean you go add to the offense of the gospel, not to be irritating and you know, telling everyone they're going to hell. Every time you go into work, you're going to hell, you're in return. Just living the gospel is an offense. Not participating in the evil of the world system is offensive because it causes conviction. In John 15, beginning in verse 18, Jesus addressed this. He said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it ever hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you're not of the world, you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. He chose you out of the world. Did you get that? Therefore, the world hates you. Remember. The word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted Me, they will also persecute you. If they kept My word, they will keep yours also. Do the people within the world system adore and approve of you? Or is there a certain level of disdain from the world? I think about these celebrities who quote-unquote come to saving faith. And yet there's never any resentment against them. They're everybody's buddy in Hollywood because they're not light. They've never made enemies. And I'm like, I, you know, people like, no, you have no enemies in Hollywood. How can that be? You're in Hollywood. You've been in Hollywood. You got converted, but yet people still pat you on the back and say how great you yeah, are. How can that be? Something can't be right here. Verse 8, Jesus says, you go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. So Jesus is going to stay, stay a while here in Galilee because his time has simply not yet fully come. The program of Jesus was regulated by the Father, and at this point, it's not yet his time. It's that simple. He was not saying here that he wouldn't attend. Don't, don't misread that but rather that he was going to depart according to his time and not the conduct and counsel of his brothers. Remember our study in Psalm 1? Blessed is the man who walks what? Not in the counsel of the ungodly. The godly, those who are sinners saved by grace, don't take advice from sinners that are not yet saved by grace. Amen? Verse 9, When He had said these things to them, He remained in Galilee. But when His brothers had gone up, then He also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Now according to divine timing, Jesus leaves Galilee, here it is, for the last time. For the last time. Notice He does not go openly, but He goes in secret. To go in the company of the disciples, to go in the company of the brothers would have attracted a whole lot of attention. So he goes incognito. Not to draw attention to himself because it was not yet time. So he goes in secretly. If you remember the first time Jesus arrived into Jerusalem in the beginning of His ministry, the first thing He did is He walked into the temple and He cleaned house. That caused a stir. That caused the stir. He laid that cord of whips to their backs. To do that a second time would bring forth death for sure. This time he goes in, he didn't do that. Six months later, he will do it again. He will go into the temple again. He will clean house. He will turn the place upside down. He said, my father's house is a house of prayer. you turn turned it into a thief, you bunch of hypocrites, he says. And he was shortly thereafter what? Die, Because the time was light. The time was purple. So He arrives at this feast, and when He arrives, there's already a buzz. Guarding His whereabouts. Verse 11, Then the Jews sought Him at the feast and said, Where is the man? Where is that man? So the Jews are the hostile religious authorities. They've been waiting for him. They knew that he would be at the feast. This was not a friendly inquiry. Oh, where is he the one doing all the miracles? Where is the man? Hatred, hostility. You can feel the bleeding hatred coming up out of them. And this is a continuous action. The enemies were continually asking, ongoing, where is he? Where is he? Where is he? So the arrival of Jesus here brings both controversy and division. As always. Now notice this. Verse 12, 13. And there was much complaining about among the people concerning Him. Some said He's good. Others said no. On the contrary, He deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of Him for fear of the Jews. So they're talking about Him. This means that there was a murmuring. This means that there was a whispering. Where is He? Where is He? Some said he was good. You know, the one who was performing the miracles. He he, he healed my Aunt Bessie. I was there. I saw it. Remember up in Galilee, he was doing all these miracles? Remember last time he was here? Remember the man that laid by the pool year after year after year? Remember? Remember that? He healed him. He told him to get up and walk, and he did it. He's still walking today. He's good. He's good. There's something good about him. On the other hand, you had another group. No, he's not. He breaks the... He he not only violates the Sabbath, but he tells people to violate the Sabbath. He's trying to teach people to violate the Sabbath, and on top of that, he claims equality with God. He thinks he's God. He's a blasphemer. same is true today. Some people bow in humble submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and others say, well, he was a good teacher. Yeah, he said he was the way, the truth, and life, but he's only one way. So long as someone else is sincere, they'll get to heaven. Jesus is just one of those channels. If you believe that, you're on the broad road that leads to hell, said Jesus. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. So He's divisive. There's murmuring. There's whispering. So Jesus can only be good if He is true. He's either all good or He's a liar. Nothing in between. So you're divided here. There's great division here. And then there was fear, because why? The Jewish leaders controlled the people. There was great fear that if you were to claim and proclaim Christ as who He was, to speak positively, here it is: you'd be put out of the synagogue. You could no longer associate with the masses in your little religious activity. They would cast you out. Now that wasn't set in stone at this point, but in in John chapter nine, verse twenty-two. When the blind man was healed, they inquired of the parents of the blind man if he had been blind his whole life. Remember that? And they were afraid to proclaim Jesus Christ as having done it. Why? Because they feared man and they feared being cast out from the synagogue. Oh, may we never fear man. May we never fear man. May we be on the divine timetable of our Lord and Savior boldly proclaiming His name. So verses eleven to thirteen are really an introduction to the rest of the chapter and all of chapter eight. And we know now that Jesus did not enter this feast publicly proclaiming his Messiahship at this point, but coming as he did would give him yet another opportunity to teach the crowd. For what? To draw men and women to himself. He's going to preach a killer sermon, because he only preaches killer sermons. Because he is the word. And that will be for next time. Verse 13, however, no man spoke openly of Him for fear of the Jews. What a warning! What an awful thing to fear man. Proverbs 29.25 says, the fear of man brings a snare. It grips you. holds you. May we seize the time. May we make the most of every opportunity that's set before us. And may we make disciples. Make sure you're being discipled so that you can be a disciple maker. So what is your relationship to Jesus Christ here this morning? Do you truly know Him? Or do you simply view Jesus as being a good man? Whose timetable are you on? Is your time His time? Is your time, on the other hand, always ready? Ready? you confess your lips that you know Jesus Christ and yet live in rebellious sin and are therefore deceived, may God open your eyes today to the truth of the Gospel. And don't respond to Him with indifference. He's the Lord. He's the only way. The Gospel means good news. The reason there's good news is because there's a whole bunch of bad. And the bad news is That if you're not in Christ, you have a nature that you were born with which separates you from God. You're totally depraved. You have no good in and of yourself whatsoever to stand in the face of a holy God. Jesus Christ came. He became a man. He lowered Himself. He stepped out of glory. He took on humanity. And He took upon Himself the wrath of the Father for all who will believe. It doesn't mean that you stand there, well, I say with my mouth, yeah, I agree that Jesus was all that, but until you bow your life in humble submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, you're still dead in your trespasses and sins. So I invite you to come in your heart before the living, holy God and and repent and believe. And you shall be saved. And then you can partake of communion, which represents the broken body and the shed blood of the One who came. If you're not a believer, please do not partake. Communion is a very intimate time. It's a very glorious time for those of us who are in Christ. Coming to the table of the Lord is also a great responsibility. The church has a responsibility. The church has a responsibility to not only examine ourselves when we come to the Lord's table because we are forgiven, because you are cleansed, because you are going to heaven, because you are Justified means you've been declared free from all blame. That's what that represents. There's also another thing that we do which is a hard thing to do and is never a pleasant thing to do. It's to implement church discipline when a brother or sister who's a member of the church rebels and is, remains in an unrepentant place. Unfortunately, We have a brother in our church who is a member here. Who, if you're a member here, you witnessed his baptism. You witnessed him profess Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. You witnessed him give testimony as to what Christ has done in his life. And unfortunately, at this time, he is in a lifestyle of sin that the Bible instructs us to confront. That brother has been confronted. And I'm going to show you how he's been confronted. And that how is according to the Scriptures. This would be shocking for many of you. If you're a visitor here, um, I, I was going to ask visitors to leave, but please just remain. The Bible gives us clear warning. This is very difficult to do. This is never fun. Jesus gave a parable in Luke, in Matthew 18. He said, what do you think? One of the little what? One of the little members of the flock. A brother or a sister in the faith. Verse 15, moreover. The church discipline verses here could be in context to what I just read. Moreover, therefore, if your brother sins against you, you go and you tell him his fault between you and him alone. That step has been taken. Our brother was confronted one on one. Remained unrepentant, almost boasting, unfortunately, in the sin. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. That's great. That's going on here in this church. We've never had to go to this step many times. This is our first time. But if he will not hear you, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. That step was done last week. That in a public place, the two from this body confronted them, that's individual in love, urged them, pleaded with him to repent, begged him to repent, begged him to turn from that which will destroy him if he doesn't stop it, but again, he refused. And again, actually almost boasted. In it. Claims to no doctrine, no doctrine, Knows what the word says, knows what it means by what it says that has remained in this play. Verse 17: If he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. This is the church. Why? Because it is now up to us, as a church, individually, to confront the brother in love. Galatians 6 is very clear. It says, "Brethren." If a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of what? Gentleness. Why? Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. There's not a one of us in here, including myself, and our own strength, who is not prone to stumble, to even rebel. First Peter 4.17 says, For the time has come for judgment to begin in the house of God. This means a purging, a purifying, a chastening. It's not fun. So the next step, brothers and sisters, is for you. I'm going to name the brother in a minute. If you come in contact with the brother, you don't go join together for lunch or go surfing or have fellowship as though nothing's wrong. You see? You get together with the individual, you confront the issue in love. That's church discipline. That's this next step of church discipline. And we do this in love with the hope of winning our brother back. You, see. you don't call up and go surfing, go to a restaurant, or go wherever else without addressing the issue. You must address the issue. You don't ignore it. I know this is shocking for some of you because many, most churches don't do this today. Which is just a disregard for the Word of God. So today we approach step three. We tell the church. We pray for Him. Pray. Pray, pray, pray. Pray. Don't be surprised if you run into Him. If you know His number, call Him. Pray for Him. Encourage Him to repent. And the hope is that we don't have to go to the next step. The next step says, if he refuses to hear the church, let him be to you as a heathen and a tax collector. Which means that any any conversation or any meeting with the individual is solely and totally evangelistic. You just treat him as though he were a non-believer. Is he welcome to come into the church to the Word? Absolutely. But you do not fellowship as though everything is okay. Okay, That's this step. I want to make very clear what this is. Amen? Amen, amen. Pray for Him, but don't act as though nothing's wrong. Amen? So as we prepare to take communion, if you're not a believer, do not partake. We must examine ourselves, our own lives, because Christ was paid a great price. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You prepare our hearts now to receive the bread and the juice which represent the broken body of shed blood. We thank You, Lord, for the instructions of church discipline. and We know its purpose. It's to purify the church. It's to regain those who stray, Convict His soul. Bring Him to repentance. May He, Lord, come to His senses. Realize that He sinned against His Father in Heaven. And understand how much the church loves Him. And I pray, Lord, for anyone here who may have a divine appointment with him, that as you provide that, may we live according to divine, the divine timetable of you, Almighty God. Give us wisdom and discernment with this situation. We pray, Lord, that we'll never have to enter this step again, but we also know, Lord, that it purifies our own hearts to deal with it, step one, conviction of the Holy Spirit. So, Lord, I pray that we'd examine ourselves in light of Scripture and rejoice in the broken body and shed the blood of Your Son, Jesus Christ. For it's in His name we pray. Amen.